mind this week. Nelson's down, been pretty sick for two or three days, although he's somewhat better today. Well, last night I thought was just done wonderfully, everyone from the beginning to the end. I think we had a sumptuous repast fit for future-to-be kings and certainly reflected the blessing uh, that we intended to depict about how God will again begin to bless his people and to protect us, to be with us, uh, and to preserve us. And uh, that's what last night and the beginning of the two days of Purim was all about. Uh, We need to be in a very festive approach and attitude through these these two days, being so very thankful uh, that God has delivered his people in the past and promises to do so in the future. So if we hug a little more, if we're a little more joyous, if we kid each other a little more as brothers and sisters and just be in the attitude of of festivity and fun and enjoyment, all in the background of being thankful to God for what he does for his people or has in the past and therefore a harbinger of what he will do in the future. So, again, thank you, all of you who participated in the preparation of what I felt was a very wonderful feast last night and those things that are yet to come. This evening, uh, after sundown, we'll have some finger foods and games and a and, uh, chance to enjoy each other's company and enjoy what freedom we still have left in this country, which is quickly disappearing, but the freedom in Christ and his protection, which will come to those who will serve him. And then on Sunday, for those who wish, I think around one, they're planning for... Uh, games outside if some want, baseball or, or softball or whatever, or games in here, uh, and bring your own lunch, I guess it is. So that is available also tomorrow afternoon. Having missed last week, being a bit under the weather, I, I had them play the, uh, the tape on Purim which I felt was a good review as we went into this. So I'll not say more about it now, but I want to get on, at least for a moment, back into the book of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. Uh, We have a major problem here in the end-time church that I think cannot be addressed overly in some respects because it affects the whole church. And because it is such an enigma, such a hard thing to get a grasp on, and such a hard thing to read, even in ourselves, we may feel that we have a great facility in reading it in others, (laughs) but uh, a self-read is very difficult. Let's review it again here and then move on. Because, Because you say, I am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
In other words, again, the self-analysis is one thing, and God's analysis is something entirely different. It is difficult for us who are striving, seeking to obey God and to serve God, to properly assess our own spiritual condition, so very obviously, from what God says here. And since we've all been spewed, then we all need to be paying attention to what God is saying and be careful, even as we go through these words, not to say, I know who that's talking about, because it is talking about you and me. It is talking to you and me as individuals, telling us that we, not someone else, is the problem. And as I already said, it's easy for us to say, I see that attitude and -and so-and-so, I see that problem here, but it is so very, very difficult to see in ourselves. Now, all of us find it fairly easy, I would say, to make the statement, well, I know I'm not righteous. I know I have faults and weaknesses. Uh, This can't be me here because I realize that I still have problems. This can be a matter of degrees, brethren. We need to understand that. Certainly, if we compare ourselves to God, we can see I fall very far short of that. But that isn't generally the comparison that we truly make, as we shall see. But overall, as an attitude, as an approach... We need to understand more about this so that perhaps if we as individuals need some correction here from God, we are able to grasp it, able to see it. You know, some, as, as, whereas the scripture says, some men's sins are obvious and go before them, others come behind With some people, you look at them and say, oh, there's an open book. I can see all those problems. And other people may appear not to have certain problems, but later on you find out they were just as human as the guy that was so obvious. In other words, things are not always as they appear to be, either in our own mirror or in our assessment of others. But we need God's assessment, and we need to have a mind open enough to understand. We're talking here, essentially, about self-righteousness. And when we judge ourselves to one degree or another of being righteous, it is very hard for us to see our unrighteousness. It is perhaps the most difficult thing for people to see. So it requires some thought, some introspection, for each of us to look at ourselves very carefully and be sure of what's really there. I want to go now to Matthew 5. 
we somehow have to get past this idea of I am okay, but you are not. Until we get past that, we cannot get along properly with one another. Because one way or another, we show that our opinion of ourselves is higher than that of our opinion of someone else. And in so doing, we put barriers between ourselves. We get in each other's way. Now, here Christ spoke to his disciples. Chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. Though he got away from the multitudes. You don't see this in Hollywood movies. They were all sitting around by the thousands. But he saw the multitude and went up on a mountain to get away from them. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him, the twelve. That's to whom he spoke here. This is the beginning of true understanding of the spiritual side of things that might have been missed in the Old Testament without the Spirit of God and without Christ there with them. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The very first thing he addresses is poor in spirit. He addresses other attitudes here that those who are righteous need to have, and they call them among men the Beatitudes or something that sounds uh, religious, I guess, or sanctimonious, but they are all attitudes that we should be in, is where that term, I think, comes from. But poor in spirit may not be as definable to us uh, in those words as perhaps it could be. What do you mean, poor in spirit? Does that mean you shouldn't have much of God's Holy Spirit? Uh, that you shouldn't have human spirit or spunk? That we ought to all be dead fish and limp-wristed? What do you mean by poor in spirit? I think John Reidenbaugh explained this very well one time, where he said a better rendition or a better way of saying this is those who understand their spiritual poverty. That's what it's talking about. Those who understand their poverty. Now we are told that we are to lay up treasures in heaven, not on the earth. Well, he, he says that later in this same section of, of teaching. But we need to be strong in spirit, the spirit of God. Not the spirit of pride or of vanity, of ego, of self, or idolatry. But recognize our spiritual poverty. We'll see that in some various scriptures as we go through. And hopefully define this a little better. So, to have a true assessment of ourselves, to understand our spiritual poverty, that puts us in juxtaposition to what he describes the Laodicean as being. Or just the opposite, I should say. Those who assess themselves in good spiritual condition. 
as compared to those who assess themselves as, be in, as being in spiritual poverty. I'm poor when it comes to being like God. I am poor in doing what I need to do and thinking what I need to think, if you will. I'm not very good at being a Christian. Now, in the financial world or business world, we might say, I not, must not be a very good businessman or a very good worker or whatever because I can't make millions. I can't make billions. I can barely make enough to pay the bills and get by. So, it's not hard for us in that sense to recognize our physical poverty, is it? You don't have two dimes to rub together. It's not too hard to say, you know, I'm poor. But when it comes to spiritual assessment, we have an entirely different problem. Now, the very fact that we want to be like God and to act like and think like God automatically makes us begin to think that we are more that way, perhaps, than we are. Or we make the mistake of comparing ourselves among ourselves, and by comparison, we feel like we're okay, because at least I'm not like you are, or so-and-so is. So when we make those comparisons, we cut ourselves short. We keep ourselves from true assessment and understanding, and therefore we limit ourselves in our capacity to overcome. And we limit ourselves in our capacity to get along with one another, because with comparing ourselves, we put up barriers with others. And we become judgmental and condemnative so very, very easily. And we can put others down. Those things have been said. We put others down so we can feel better about ourselves. But does that make us better by doing that? Does it make us more like God when we do that? No, it just gives us a sense of well-being or that we're okay despite the fact that those around us are not. But it doesn't improve our spiritual standing before God. We just feel a little better about ourselves, that's all. And that is not what causes overcoming, growing, and preparing for the kingdom of God. We must, at some point, learn to live together in peace and harmony. The kingdom of God will be peace and harmony. There will not be fighting, there will not be bitterness, there will not be hatred, there will be no tears, no pain. Those frustrations will go away. Now what causes them to go away? Repentance, change of attitude. If you hold grudges, if you have animosity, toward others, if you can't get past what they may have done or you thought they did or what they said or you thought they said or what you thought they meant, whatever it might be, 
and you can't get past it, that shows that you were unlike God. It shows a spiritual poverty, if you will. Because God isn't that way. His anger is for an instant. He is slow to anger. He is quick to get over anger. He does not bear grudges. He does not bring up the past. He forgets it and moves on. We as humans have trouble with that. Why? Because he is God and has that capacity. We have the Spirit of God, but we don't have it in sufficient equivalency to be able to move past other people's transgressions. Real or imagined. Because they become a cloud. They become a shadow. We repeat them to one another. We carry them on. It is the glory of God to cover sin and to move past it in the blood of Christ. That is the glory of God. But that's not the way men and people are. Now, that's just one example. We could be many, many more. And I want to get into that. Marla brought it up the other day after I had given the, the last sermon I gave. She says, we need to perhaps see what you're trying to get across, but we also need to concentrate on the true righteousness of God. She made a very, very good point. We need to grasp what God is, why he has the attitudes he has, and where we fall short of the spirit and attitude of the Father and the Son. And if we can grasp that, then it gives us more opportunity to work at getting more like that instead of staying as we are. I think it's a continual frustration with you and me that we change so slowly, that it's hard for us to get past attitudes and problems that we've had for years, for decades, maybe all our lives things that happened to us, things that were done to us, things that we did, things that we thought, attitudes we got in, whatever it might be. It's hard to move past those, even elements of our personality that are not what they ought to be. They're not like God. God is full of the fruit of the Spirit of God. Joy, peace, happiness, love, gentleness, patience, mercy. That's what he's full of. And we are somewhat short of that, to say the least. How do we get from here to there? Let's explore that a little more as we go on. But being aware of our spiritual poverty is the first thing that Christ mentions to his disciples in getting them on the right track. Getting them in the right attitude to receive the rest of what he had to say in chapters 5, 6, and 7. If we do not recognize our spiritual poverty, then how are we going to learn? Really. How do you teach someone 
who thinks they have the answers. You don't. That is why it is so hard to give a sermon like today, knowing that most of it will be forgotten by the time potluck is served. Some might remember it till Monday. Some might always. There are certain things sometimes that stick out that hit your mind and, and you learn and remember. But it is people who think they have the answers that are the hardest to teach. And we will see, before we're done here today, that that is the condition of the church today. They are not teachable, not ready to listen, not ready to learn, not willing to change. And that makes it very tough to try to teach people. How do you put something in a glass that is full? How do you get it in? There's no room. Let's go to Deuteronomy 12 and see how Moses assessed this situation a little bit. We just recently went over this, either during the feast or right after, but uh, let's look at it a little bit from a little different standpoint than perhaps we did at that time. Deuteronomy 12. I left my Bible in camp. I've got a different one here, so I'm having trouble even finding the right pages. Amazing how we get familiar with something. Deuteronomy 12. Now, they were poised to go into the promised land, just as we are poised today to have God's blessings return to at least a tithe of the church and to cause them to do the end-time work. Just as they were about to go into the promised land and do the work of ancient Israel, building of a, of a people. But Moses had led them now through 40 years in the wilderness. And he makes kind of a curious statement down here, which we'll address. He says, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the eternal God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. So he's telling them how they ought to live. Now, they had not been living that way. They had not been in the right understanding, if you will. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess, dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. They were to go into the land and wipe out any vestige of ungodliness, any carnality, any idol worship, anything in mind or body that was contrary in any way to God. That's what he's saying here. Now, God has called us to do that. You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. 
any time God's people are called upon to go anywhere to represent God, they are to get rid of anything that smacks of Satan's world and the societies and culture of men. Did he not tell us to leave the cities, go dwell in the field there in Micah 4, and get out of the heart of Babylon? He said you can't get clear out, go even to Babylon, but it's the same type of language that Moses is using here. Get rid of Babylon. Now, I preached some of these things early on after we got here. And some people began to actually work at doing that. Threw away a lot of music, a lot of movies, a lot of tapes, a lot of stuff that came from the world. Now, in all cases, I'm not sure whether they went too far or did not go too far in some respects. That's not what we're here to discuss. The point is, they decided, we need to do something about this, and proceeded to take what appeared to be some rash moves by some others, and were labeled self-righteous for so doing. It was a genuine effort to get rid of that part of this world that taints us, spoils us, ruins us, spiritually, and quit imbibing them in their bodies and their minds. And they were looked upon as self-righteous. Well, you just think you're better than the rest of us. No, it was a move toward righteousness in the best that they understood how to go about it. They actually began to make changes, and it made waves. It rocked the boat with some. And they were labeled holier than thou or self-righteous. That was a mistake. Not on their part, but in those who made those judgmental and condemnative comments and had those attitudes. You see, we get used to a certain way of things. We like the status quo as it is. What is that? If any human being, brethren, is comfortable with the status quo, he does not understand his spiritual condition. Every one of us is so far removed from the way God is and his character, his attitudes, that it's disheartening, frustrating, and discouraging if you dwell on it. Maybe that's why we don't. And since we don't dwell on it enough, maybe we also don't overcome it. So, it remains the same. That's what lukewarmness is all about. Liking the status quo. You have to shake things up in your mind, your emotions, your thoughts, and in your activities and the way you do things in order to be more like God. 
if you can settle down in the status quo, then you, whether you would say it or not, are accepting of the way you are, and you are comfortable with it, and it's okay with you. You have to shake the tree. Now that's what Moses is telling these people. You don't continue in the ways of the world around you. You change it. Now we can justify, well, this movie isn't that bad, or that program, well, I just do it once in a while. Or, I don't eat junk much, but, you know, once in a while it's okay. How much murder is okay? How much fornication is okay? How much hatred and animosity is okay? How do you quantify that? None is okay. How much pig is it okay to eat? Well, it says don't eat it. None. None of it. So, we're careful not to eat pig. But what is pig? Or oysters? Shrimp. They are symbolic only, really of other evils that are spiritually unclean or physically unclean to our bodies that are not good for us. So God has created certain things that he says do not touch. And that should get across to us that that means anything that is not good for us in our body or our mind. If it's not good for us, then it's bad for us. And how do you, self-righteously then, make a decision that this much is okay for me? This much God wouldn't care about. How much of the world can you take into the kingdom of God? How much of the attitude of Satan, spite, misery, hate, animosity, grudges, can you take into the kingdom of God? Satan and all his attitudes are going to be banned throughout eternity from any touching of the kingdom of God. There will be no humans there once the, the plan is complete. We all have to be full of the Spirit of God and have none of the Spirit of Satan or the world in us. That is our goal. That is our purpose. That should be our motivation every day that we live on the face of this earth, brethren, is to put out anything that smacks of this world and Satan's way in the pollution of mind and body in any form. To do the very best we can to think good thoughts about each other. To do the very best we can to only put in our bodies that which is the best we can find, the best we can do. And not compromise. That is an attitude that we must have. 
And any spirit of compromise is lukewarmness. Any spirit of compromise is Laodiceanism. Now, do we have any of that in us? We're full of it. We're full of it. We fall short of the standard every day in our lives. And we're quick to point out somebody else falling short of it. And that's lack of mercy. That's lack of proper judgment. That's lack of love and kindness and gentleness and the Spirit of God. How much of that should we tolerate? Brethren, it is a full-time job to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. How can we sit on the fence and make judgments that this is okay for me, or this won't really hurt me? Yes, it does. We're supposed to be beginners in evil and experts in good, to paraphrase. But if we watch a little of the evil of this world, well, I just won't let it affect me. You can't help but have it affect you to one degree or another. Maybe not obviously. You watch murder, you watch adultery, you watch all kinds of sins on TV or internet or wherever you choose to get your sin and justify that it's okay. We let our children play games of kill, destroy, murder, wipe out, rat-a-tat-tat, and think that's okay. Is that godly? Is that how God thinks? Does God even begin to think in terms of destroy, kill, murder? Well, it's just playing games. It's mind and emotionally conditioning. And those who create and purvey those types of things are doing it on purpose. Part of their purpose is to make money off it. Some of them have more nefarious attitudes and they want to destroy our children and us as adults. There is no room for that kind of thing. Now we lay it a sin, and we can accept the status quo. That's just, well, that's the way things are these days. No, brethren, God called you and me to get away from that and to leave it alone so that He can deliver us. Now, I'd like to be all gushy and nice today, this being a time of festivity. But brethren, we haven't been delivered yet, entirely. And we need to make some changes if we expect God to deliver us. Now, I'm not here to rail on you and me. I'm here to help us understand what the problem is so that we might fix it. We need to fix things in order to be of use to God and not just get by until we die. Destroy their altars. Verse 4, You shall not worship the eternal your God with such things. 
In other words, you can't have the clutter of Satanism in this world around you and serve God. You have to get rid of it. But you shall seek the place where the eternal your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. Go where God is. Go where God is teaching his people. Do what God would have you do. Do not carry the world in your knapsack as you go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. In other words, take it all there where God would have us be. Don't leave anything behind. All these things. And there you shall eat before the eternal your God, and you shall rejoice in all that you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the eternal your God has blessed you. Now he makes a very interesting Not at all do as we are doing here today. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which eternal your God is giving you. And then he goes on to explain, when you cross that river Jordan, you're to be different. You're not to bring that baggage with you. You're to leave it behind. Don't be as we are here at. He had been leading them for 40 years, explaining the ways of God, had given them the Ten Commandments. So what did he mean by this? Including himself, as we are, he said. Moses himself was not yet perfect before God. He was a man who was very meek, the Bible shows. He was not full of pride and anger and those negative emotions, but was meek. And yet he let his temper get away with him that time when he struck the rock. And he had his own difficulties, as human every human being does. So he recognized his own spiritual poverty to some degree here and that of the people. Now, just because they had the truth, did that make them righteous? No. They had the truth. They had the Ten Commandments. They had all the teachings of Moses, but they leaned to their own understanding. This is okay for me. I think this way. Now, the way I see it, blah, 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 or however they might want to have termed it, they did their own thing. Doing your own thing has been pounded in your head and mine from childhood. We're free. We're human beings. Nobody can tell us what to do. I'll live my own life. I'll do as I please. If it feels good, do it. Is the society and the culture around us but it isn't godly. It isn't the way he does things. It's not the way he would have us do things. 
But that's in us. Boy, that's that pride of being an American. That's that pride of being from whatever state you think is so dear. Or whatever bloodline you think you are that makes you better than somebody else. Or being male or being female or what makes you better than somebody else. Or being kind of in between, which somehow makes people think they're better than somebody else. No. It's God's way. It's His standard. It's what we have to be. He says, Do not be as we are today, each man doing what is right in his own eyes. What does God say? God says don't pollute our bodies. He mentions specifically things that He has made unclean. But nearly everything in a so-called grocery store today is in the same category. It's full of poisons, artificial sweeteners, white sugars, white flours, white noodles, bleached, all kinds of chemicals added. We're destroying our health in saying it's okay to eat a little of this. And just because it says natural on the label, you think, oh, this must be all natural. But you don't turn it over and read that it's got 73 ingredients most of which you cannot even pronounce. But it's okay, because it said natural on it. Because we want it to. We want to eat junk and say it's okay. Now, if that's not Laodiceanism, I don't know what is. It's compromising with the world and Satanism. And putting things in our minds and our bodies, which are the temple of the Spirit of God. Now, I labeled this series, How God Would Build a Temple, but I'm not quite through the section yet on how God would not build a temple. It would not be with poisons in our bodies or our minds. But somehow we find a way to justify being what we are and doing what we do to our minds and bodies. No wonder God spewed us out. Because we are self-righteous. Self-determining. I will decide for myself, don't you tell me anything. Who do you think you are telling me how I'm going to eat, how I'm going to think, what I'm going to watch, where I'm going to go? I'll tell you where you're going to go. You're going to hell. Now understand that in the light of the truth. There is no ever-burning hell. But if we compromise in God's ways and are laid a sin, oh, so-so, okay, not good, not righteous like we ought to be, but hey, you know, I'm human. And I need a little of this and I need a little of that. And boy, I need some comfort food today. Whatever it might be. The little won't hurt me. We have all ways of justifying what we put in our minds or our bodies, don't we? And it's a compromise. And what is a compromise? It's lukewarmness. It's something God hates with a passion. And he spews it out of his mouth and vomit. That's us, brethren. 
That's you, that's me. So when you start trying to find self-righteousness, it's fairly easy to do if you're honest. What do I compromise on? What status quo am I comfortable with? What have I developed as habits in my mind and body that somebody had better leave alone because now they've done quit preaching and gone to meddling? Brethren, I don't police you. I don't go to your homes and try to find everything that you're doing or everything that you're eating. I don't stand out in the street and try to listen to what TV show you're watching. And I can't hear your computer, so, you know, it would be futile. But I am here to show you what God says about your mind and body and how you need to approach it. Not somebody else. You. I have to say it, but I'm talking to me. Two. It's all of us. We were all spewed. So was I. It doesn't matter. Now he says here, not to do as you are doing today. Every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. This is okay for me. They were not following God's standard and his statutes and his judgments. Moses says, you had ought to better do it. And don't be like you are. Change. Do something different. Don't be as you are. Be different than you are. You're about to cross this river. Don't take this baggage with you. We crossed the river, in one sense, by being baptized. And we're supposed to leave all worldly thinking, all carnality, all satanic attitudes behind. We came up out of the water cleansed and pure. And we immediately started taking on negativity, sin, wrong attitudes, and still have them today. Maybe we've grown some. not saying we haven't. But I want us to understand in a crystal clear way what it is when he tells us in Revelation 3.17 we have a problem. If you don't grasp it, if you don't understand it, if you don't see it in yourself, you're not going to get rid of it. Okay? And my goal, my purpose, my hope is that you and I will see it and get rid of it. So that we not only get spewed out of his mouth now as a church, but we don't get spewed into the tribulation and we don't get spewed into the lake of fire. I don't want any of us to be there. I want us to learn. I want us to grow. I want us to see ourselves as God sees us. Not necessarily as others see us, but see ourselves as God sees us. Then we have a chance to overcome. Micah 4.9 says, Our counselor is dead, our king is perished. Well, it's just the opposite of that, but it's what it says. When Herbert Armstrong died, 
The one that we all look to as a human on this earth, as a guide, as a teacher, was gone. Isaiah 51, 17. I think I'll, I'll quickly turn to that one. We're familiar with these scriptures, but let's understand what the situation is that we are in today. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Awake! Awake! Stand up, O Jerusalem! You have drunk, or who have drunk, at the hand of the Eternal. The cup of His fury. That's the church. That's us. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. We drank of the cup of trembling. The cup of this world. The cup of Satan. And it makes us tremble in fear of our future if we don't change it. There is no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and the sword. By whom will I comfort you? Who can I send to comfort you when you've done this to yourselves and you've been spewed out on the pavement? He does say in another place in Isaiah, he'll send one to do so, and then eventually he's going to send the two. But you know what? We've been over the ground many times in Matthew 24, which shows that when those two come on the scene, their second job is to preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the end will come. The end of this age and the return of Christ will happen three and a half days after they die. That wasn't Herbert Armstrong. That's the two. It has to take two witnesses. Zechariah 3 and 4 show what their job is. First of all, to teach, to guide, to lead the church out of the mess that we are currently in. To teach us what we need to learn. To restore truth. To restore order. To restore attitude. To get rid of the Laodiceanism to get us into an understanding of our spiritual poverty and what we need to do about it, to get compromise and lukewarmness out of our lives, and to get the world and Satan out of our minds, hearts, and bodies. And they will be rejected by 90% of the church. This will be accompanied by signs and wonders, as Zechariah 3 and other scriptures show. And they will not even believe when the hand of God is so clearly shown that God is there, they will reject the two that God sends to teach. Now, why is that? Let's understand why that is. I've told you many times that it would be that way and showed you many scriptures to prove it. But why will 90% of the church reject those whom God directly sends to teach them and benefit them and help them get oil in their lamps? Why would you reject them? I'll tell you why. You cannot reach the self-righteous. 
When people have adjudged the way they do things as being okay, or the doctrine and teaching that they have is to be correct and okay, then you can't put in what there is no room for. When people are righteous in their own eyes, they will not listen to whomever God sends. This is a fact of history. They didn't listen to Moses. They didn't listen to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They didn't listen to the minor prophets. They stoned them. They killed them. They dumped them in the outhouse hole. Or whatever they chose to do with them. But they did not respect them or the message they sent. And in fact, they rejected God, not those men. They have not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. No matter what man God sends, and that's the way he's always done it, people will not hear. They will not listen. I.e., they will not grasp it enough to actually admit their attitudes and change. That is what is ahead for the church. Even to whom God specifically sends cannot help them see their errors in doctrine, their errors in attitude, even through signs and wonders. Self-righteousness is so hard to penetrate, brethren. It is the most elusive thing about us that we cannot seem to grasp. Why did Christ start out by saying, Blessed are those who understand their spiritual poverty. Because if you don't get that at some point in time, you will never be able to pick up on and change those things which you so desperately need to change for spiritual and mental and physical health. Because they elude you. You find a way to cover them, put them under the rug, deny them, ignore them, justify them. See how the human mind is deceitful and desperately wicked? Do you fully, really grasp that your mind, that one right there inside your head, that one, is deceitful and desperately wicked by nature. And only the Spirit of God can change that. We need to pray that God will show us our attitudes and our sins. We need to be honest that God has spewed us out and that there must be something wrong with us or he wouldn't have done it because he loves us and he wants us in his kingdom. But he doesn't want this world in his kingdom. 
And He won't let us bring this world into that kingdom. We have to change our thinking. We have to change the things we do and allow ourselves to do. This is a desperate situation we're in, brethren. If you and I don't get it now, we're going into the fire of tribulation. And there is beyond our imagination of trouble and death. About 30% or a third will wake up in tribulation, the end of Zechariah tells us, about 12, somewhere in there. But boy, what a way to have to learn and then die physically. 90% of the church is going there. 10% is going to listen to those whom God sends to tell them what they need to do. That's all. The rest are going into the tribulation. Let's cover very quickly a few scriptures here to emphasize. Let's go to Judges. What time is it? Ooh. I wanted to finish what I have written down here, and then I get expounding. And But we've got to understand. It's not just a matter of reading it and moving on. We need to understand how it affects you and me. Judges 17, verse 6. In, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, the American way of looking at things is... Of course I do what's right in my own eyes. If I think it, it must be right. If I'm doing it, it must be right. But we've already seen Moses say that isn't the way to think. What is right in God's eyes? What is right in your eyes and mine is what makes me feel good. Which makes me euphorious. Which makes me think I'm having a good time. Which makes me think I'm okay. That's what's right in my own eyes, is what I want to do. And don't you tell me any different. Because nobody's going to tell me what to do. And I'll get irate. I'll be upset. I'll be frustrated if you try to tell me what to do. I'll eat what I want. I'll watch what I want. I'll do as I please. I will do what is right in my eyes. And it's okay because I've approved it. <laughs> Just because we approve something doesn't mean that it's right. And virtually everything in this world is wrong. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the present ruler of this evil world. And there is virtually nothing out there that is godly. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, any category you can name, it's all evil. Do we grasp that? Are we willing to walk away? Some of you were willing to walk away from homes, from relatives, even mates, to serve God. But you brought your baggage with you. Now, it's... Wonderful and great that we were willing to walk away from some things. But we're supposed to walk away from the world, not heist it up on our hump and take it with us. We're to leave it behind. 
And that which we did bring with us, we need to daily work on getting out, getting away from the influence. Chapter 21, verse 25, he says it again. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Last verse of the book of Judges. Closing statement. Not a good thing, lest you think it is. We have those today who will say we shouldn't have teachers, ministers, kings, rulers, overseers, whatever. That's not a good situation. We need someone to tell us what we need to do. The very first thing he says in the book of Zechariah when he starts introducing the subject of the latter temple and who would lead it and so on is don't be like your fathers. Don't ignore the prophets. Don't throw rocks at them. Don't besmirch and be foul and ignore what they say. Don't be like your fathers were. That's the very first thing he tells us before he starts telling us the good news of what God is going to do to help us. Is don't approach it the way you used to. The way your forebears did. Open your mind and think. And don't lean to your own understanding. Proverbs 3. And here I want verse 5. Trust in the eternal with all your, all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In Him, or in all your ways, acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. You're not to lean to your own understanding, your own conscience, your own mind. You're not to lean to the understanding, the way of the world, or Satan, the devil around us. We are to lean on God's understanding, on His Word, so that He will direct our paths. Anytime we say, well, I know the truth about that, or I'm going to do it this way, we are in danger of denying Proverbs 3, verse 5. <coughs> Chapter 12, verse 15. <coughs> Is it good when every man leans to his own understanding? The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. If you think your way of doing things, your way of taking care of your mind and body, is good, you are a fool says God Almighty. But he who heeds counsel is wise. We fool ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We justify ourselves. We like to do what we think is right. And God has told us everything around us basically is wrong. So why do we still imbibe of that which God says is wrong and find a way of justifying it in whatever amount we think is okay? God hates sin. 
in any amount, any amount of sin is wrong. None is good. None is acceptable. But how much do you and I accept in ourselves? How much do we allow? How much do we put up with or have accepted the status quo, that's just the way I am? Take me as I am, Lord. But what am you? Maybe he doesn't want you as you am. Maybe he wants you to change. Isn't that what he says all through the scriptures? Yeah. Because you're like Satan and you're like the world around you. And it has to be changed. We cannot lean to our own understanding. It is dangerous. It is foolish. Chapter 16, verse 2. Oh, that's not right. Oh, yeah, verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. I do it, so it's acceptable. It's the way I think, so it must be all right. It's what I allow, therefore it must be allowable. Compared to what? Compared to God's Word? All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. See, there's the problem. That's why it's so hard to grasp how wrong we often are. It's because we tend to think, I'm thinking it, so it must be right. If if it wasn't right, I wouldn't think it. Duh. (laughs) It's my attitude. It's my approach. It's my acceptance of whatever. But God doesn't accept it, and therefore, God weighs the spirits. He weighs the attitudes. Chapter 21, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the eternal weighs the hearts. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. He finds a way of accepting whatever he is. Oh, I know I'm not righteous. I know I'm not perfect. I, I, I fall short. How? Where? Define it. If you don't define it, you'll never fix it. What in your life? mental, physical, or spiritual, is ungodly. What is accepting of Satanism, his way, and man's culture? God is the one we need to look to. When it comes to doctrine, well, this is the way I see it, therefore it must be right. You couldn't be right because I am. Why do you think there's so much doctrinal frustration and disagreement and argument in the church? Because of that. Job 32, verse 1. I won't turn and read that, but it basically says that all of Job's friends finally decided, what's the use? We can't get through to Job. Because he is right in his own eyes. They couldn't get through to Job. 
Now, they had all kinds of ideas, most of which they themselves misread, as we do with each other. But they finally came up against it. You cannot teach, you cannot guide, you cannot lead, you cannot help anyone who figures he's right. Same deal with the end time church and the two witnesses. Our group's right. I'm right. You're not going to teach us anything. We already know. We got our ticket to Petra. Or whatever. Now you know the rest of the story with Job. But Job is a long book. Takes a long time to read all the back and forth and everything in there. Now Job was basically... A righteous man. He was keeping the laws. So God did not find fault with him. But he did find fault with Job. Contrary to some people's beliefs. Job was not poor in spirit. He did not recognize his own spiritual poverty compared to God. That was his problem. Self-righteousness. And then God took a hand and said, Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth and the sea dragons? Where were you when I set the course of when animals would breed and when they would have their young in the spring? Where were you when I decided it ought to be in May and June instead of October and November? He began to list all kinds of things that he had done that Job had nothing to do with and could not understand that were far beyond Job. And he finally began to see the vast difference between himself and God. He came to recognize his spiritual poverty compared to God. How much room is there in us to be what we are, to be as we have decided to be, and not recognize the vast gap, the gulf, as Lazarus and the rich man show, between us and God. That is what we have to come to recognize. So that all kinds of things that are unclean to our mind and our body, we reject because they are not on the godly standard. FDA standard means nothing. God's standard is everything. And Job finally saw, Hey, I've been good. I basically keep the laws. I keep the Sabbath. I go to... You know, the holy days I tie, they don't eat pigs. I'm, you know, what's the matter with you? He didn't grasp the awesomeness of the living God compared to himself. That's why the book of Job is there. And he finally said, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Now I see what my problem is and how different from God I truly am. Then he understood spiritual poverty. 
I'm in the church. Come on. No, let's grasp the difference between us and God. If we can do that, we'll be well on our way toward overcoming some things. But where we are at the church is in Isaiah 65. Still. Chapter 65 and verse 5. Now he's talking here in this context about a rebellious people who walk in a way not good, according to their own thoughts, verse 2. Same thing we've been reading in these other scriptures, right? A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. Well, that's not talking about us, because we don't eat pigs, Right? No, it's a category of all kinds of unclean things and thoughts and actions that we allow in our minds and bodies. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than thou. A church of God, of God in the end time who says, we're the only ones who are righteous. We're the only group that's Philadelphian. We are holier than the rest of you. Don't come near us. We're better than you are. We're more spiritually mature than you are. Our group is the only group that is Philadelphian. The rest of you are damn Laodiceans. Well, they don't use that word most of the time, but that's what the implication is. Anyone who says, I'm holier than you, is smoke in God's nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. When we look at any other part of the church, any other member of our brothers and sisters here, and to judge ourselves just a smidge more Acceptable, just a smidge more righteous, just a little bit better in the way we think and do than anyone else here, then the attitude of I'm holier than thou is there. It might be to a small degree or to a great degree. But what degree is okay? What degree is acceptable? No degree is acceptable to God of that attitude. Let's go from there to 2 Corinthians 10. I'll try to wrap this up fairly soon, but I'm, that's okay. you got nothing else to do. Take a nap or eat. I'll try to wrap it up pretty quickly here. But 2 Corinthians 10, I want to finish this section, finish these thoughts. And maybe we won't have to go here next week if we get it today. 2 Corinthians 10, let's start in verse 7. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance, Paul asks? Do you do this? Do we look at each other and judge each other by how we appear, how we look, how we act? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, 
Oh, I'm, I'm God's kid. I'm, I'm Christ. I'm in the church. Let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so we belong to Christ as well. So if you can say, I belong to God, I'm Christ's own child, then your brothers and sisters around you are in the same category. So why have you got your teeth and tongue on them? Huh? They belong to Christ too, don't they? You won't put your tongue on yourself much, but you'll sure lay it on somebody else. And Paul's using good logic here. If you can say, well, I belong to God, leave me alone. Then so does everybody else here belong to God, leave them alone. That's what he's trying to get across. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, speaking of the ministry, which the Eternal gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. God had given the ministry power and rule and oversight. I don't care what somebody tries to tell you who doesn't understand God. God gave those offices for the edification, he says here, in another place he puts it in Ephesians, for the perfecting of the saints. Not to destroy you. Am I here to destroy you or put you down today? I hope you don't feel that way. I am here to help you into the kingdom of God and to help me there at the same time. What we're talking about today is spirituality 101. Recognizing our poverty compared to God. And therefore, finding spiritual riches so we can be blessed in the kingdom of God. That's the point. But we've got to see it before we can fix it. We've got to understand it. Lest I seem to terrify you by letters, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. So they found fault with Paul. He goes down to verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who do commend or approve themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We cannot indulge ourselves in comparing ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ among ourselves. You cannot, you dare not, compare anyone here with yourself, for better or for worse. Only compare yourself to God. And you know what? You'll quit Stabbing each other in the back. You will quit gossiping. You will be kind and you will be gentle because you will recognize, compared to God, you are poverty stricken and bankrupt and therefore cannot lift your tongue against your brother and sister because you recognize your own spiritual poverty. It's when we don't recognize it 
that we talk down and have negative thoughts about and talk about in a negative way each other. It is self-righteousness. That's all it is. Or at least that's the major embodiment of it. It has other elements. But it is self-righteousness that allows us to do that. When we truly see our spiritual poverty, we will not dare lift our tongue against one another. Your Christ, so is your brother, so is your sister. So how do you dare compare? When he says it is not wise, he also says, by implication, it's foolish. If you compare yourselves among yourselves, you are a fool, spiritually speaking. And do not see your own spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who see their spiritual poverty. They shall inherit the kingdom of God. They do not look down upon others because they recognize how poor they themselves are. Simple equation. You want to know why we still put each other down and are negative? and have attitudes about each other, and carry grudges, and won't forget the past. It's because we're so damn spiritually in our condition that God spewed us out of his mouth. Now you think I'm cussing, so put me down for that. No. God is going to damn us if we don't change it into the lake of fire and before that the fire of tribulation God damned people damned by God the world throws that term around in cursing pretty loosely but it's something that's real because there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth And if you gnash your teeth on each other, you don't recognize your own spiritual condition because that is a symptom of self-righteousness and not seeing our spiritual poverty. It's a symptom, a manifestation of it. When we learn to get our tongues off of each other, we will have begun to see our spiritual poverty we will have begun to shed the eyes of Laodiceanism. Status quo, I am the way I am. Take me as I am, Lord. I can't change this. This is too big for me. God has put nothing on us that is too big for us with his help. Nothing! He tempts, God tempts no man. We are tempted when we are carried away of our own lusts. Let's cover one more in Isaiah 46, because it's talking about right now in the church. Herbert Armstrong died, Isaiah 39, and he talks about a new work beginning in chapter 40. A voice crying in the wilderness, and goes on and explains that. He shows in 44 and 45 how the treasures of God are going to be revealed. Then he comes down to chapter 46. And he says, the idols of this world are on their way down. 
I won't read all of it, but you can, but that's basically what he's trying to say. Verse 3, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, what's left of the church, listen, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. In spite of your spiritual poverty and what you lack, God hasn't forsaken you, as he says in the New Testament, through Paul. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we should be alike. Who dares think he is like God? Job? Daryl? You? We all fall so far short there's not any comparison to be made. They have their gods. But their gods can't answer them. They will not save them out of his trouble, end of verse 7. Can your idol worship of self deliver you? You know what it is? You know what self-righteousness is? It's idolatry. It's putting you and your appetites, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, ahead of God. Ahead of what He wants us to do. We break the first commandment. That's all it took for God to spew us out is us putting ourselves and what we want and what we like and what will make us comfortable ahead of God and His way. And therefore, we have accepted what we are and are not willing to change it. Verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, who are far from righteousness. Far from it is what we are. Now, compared to ourselves, among ourselves, hey, I ain't too bad compared to you. That's not the standard. God Almighty is the standard, and His Word is the standard. And we all fall far short of it, and how dare we criticize one another. That is so pathetic, brethren. It truly is. But it's us. Because we're self-righteous. And the way we look at it and the way we look at others has to be right. Far from righteousness. Job was keeping the commandments, but he was a long way away from being like God. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. He has called you and me to come out of Laodiceanism, to quit judging one another, and see ourselves as God sees us, and not to be right in our own eyes, but to listen to his words and change, and he will allow us to go to Zion and set an example for the rest of the world. And 10% of his people are going to listen, and they are going to heed, and they are going to come and see their spiritual poverty and not be judgmental and condemnative of each other because they have no right to be whatsoever. But if we still do, we need to get on our knees 
and ask God to help us see how poor we truly are compared to Him. And then maybe we'll begin to change. Understand it so you can fix it. Okay?